amen. You know, after that day, even before that day, Martin Luther faced a bunch of opposition. He was, he was a leader in the church, a reformation, trying to bring back the light of God's word onto God's people so they might experience salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And from that day on, he was, his life was threatened. Even as he was le- leaving the Diet of Worms, uh, he had to be protected by Frederick the Wise. Uh, he had to be kidnapped under the, under the guise of, uh, of night, and, and Luther had to be, had to be taken uh, to a castle for his own protection because he's going to be killed, surely put to death by the church. You know, like Nehemiah, Luther had been given a job to do. And it was, it was by God's sovereign power that God would see it through. The story of this book of Nehemiah, like the story of Luther, and even like the story of your life, dear Christian, is the story of God's good work accomplished by God's good hand. The story of humanity, the story of the world, the story of everything is the story of God's good work accomplished by God's good hand. And particularly here in the book of Nehemiah, we see that happening. God's good work accomplished by God's good hand through Nehemiah. And we're just going to look at, it, look at it through three, just hang our thoughts on three different prongs. The, the request, the preparation, and the work. God's good work accomplished by God's good hand. We see through this narrative in Nehemiah 2 and 3 through the request, the preparation, the work. Now, the first point is going to be the longest point. The, the last point is going to be very short. It only covers one chapter. But hopefully you'll see why that happens. Everyone's looking at it like, is that right? (laughs) If something's wrong, just please forgive me. The request, the preparation, the work. Okay, is that right? Okay, good. Here we go. Nehemiah 2. Now, uh, it was read for us in in our hearing the first chapter, or the second chapter, the first eight verses. And the story of Nehemiah begins, you'll remember last week with bad news. And, and Nehemiah uh, comes, how he responds to bad news is he comes before the Lord, he falls on his knees, and he requests, he makes a plea for God to remember. He makes a plea, God, please remember your people and your great promises. And now chapter 2 is the answer to that request. Chapters 2 and 3 are the answer to that request. And Nehemiah's response in the face of bad news shows courageous leadership. In the face of bad news, what does a courageous leader do? He or she prays. They pour out their hearts to God because they know he cares about them and he can do something about it. The one who is sovereign over it all, we're asking him, reign in us. Reign in us, Lord. Remember your request. Remember our request and your people and your great promise. So the good hand of the Lord is behind it all, directing what is to be. Now, you might say, that sounds a lot like fate. You'd say, the good hand of the Lord behind everything directing what is to be is called providence. Sounds a lot like fate. But fate says, whatever will be, will be. Providence, the, the doctrine of the Bible, 
that God's good hand is behind everything, working everything together for good, is a doctrine that states whatever will be, whatever comes to pass, comes to pass by God's good purpose. It's the good purpose of God that's weaving all things together for good and for his glory. It's his supreme rule. In his supreme rule, he chooses to use ordinary people like Nehemiah to stand courageously for truth and justice. And some of the ways he tends to work is through prayers and through planning. Through the prayers and the planning of God's people. So God is at work to rebuild and restore. He's at work to rebuild Jerusalem and restore his people through Nehemiah's prayers and now his planning. This is, the God's, this is God's good work being accomplished by his good hand. So think of Nehemiah and what we just read earlier. What position is he in to request anything from the king? He's a Jew who's been taken captive and is a servant of the king, Nehemiah. We see God placed Nehemiah in an influential position as a cupbearer to the king. The cupbearer's job was to make sure that there was wine in front of the king and that it wasn't poisoned, right? Uh, so there's no place for uh, a, a, a sour disposition. You can understand why. It, the king, uh, the cupbearer had to be happy in front of the king. You know, and often the, the cupbearer was also a, a eunuch. So he would not have had family or children of his own. Just want to remind you, friends, that God uses single people and those who cannot have families, as well as those who are married, people with complicated families. He uses cupbearers alike, like Nehemiah, to accomplish his work. And God has placed Nehemiah in just the position he wanted him so he might make a request for God's people. What position are you in? Where are you? Are you dissatisfied with your life, with your, with your status as single or married, as with kids or without kids, as a student or, or you wish you could be a student? Well, where are you in life? And I would say, according to God's good word, his good hand is on you to accomplish his good work through you. It doesn't matter if you're a eunuch like Nehemiah to never have kids again. Nehemiah has been put in this position as a cupbearer for God's good purposes. And Nehemiah has prayed and now it's time to act. He has prayed and he has planned for four months. In chapter one, we notice that uh, he started in the month of Kislev. And now in the month of Nisan, in chapter 2, verse 1, we, we notice that, that uh, now it's time for him to act. But that's four months from December, around December to around April. And now it's time for him to act. In chapter 2, 1 and 2, the wine was before the, for King Artaxerxes, and, and so was Nehemiah. So he took the wine to the king. But something was different about Nehemiah. Something was wrong. Nehemiah said he had not been sad in front of the king before, but now sadness overwhelms Nehemiah. He overwhelms him, and he, he cannot hide it, and the king notices, and, and we should just notice that he's in a dangerous position as the cupbearer of the king. The tensions are high. 
We should also notice that it's likely that the king, King Artaxerxes, had, had fondness for Nehemiah. He noticed, like, Nehemiah, you're sad, and it's not because you're sick, but it's because you're depressed. This is nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah's king is fond of him, but Nehemiah's life is in danger. And we, we can see that because the cupbearer was not supposed to be sat in front of the king. And now Nehemiah is very afraid. Verse 2. He says, the king says this, and it made my heart afraid, very afraid. And maybe to assuage the king's fears or because he realized he had, he had breached the court etiquette, he says to the king, O king, live forever, in verse 3. Something like, long live the king, long live the queen. Instead of shying away and pretending to be happy, Nehemiah puts his life on the line. Long live the king, he says, but he also says, why shouldn't I be sad, O king, about the sad news of my people and my city that's broken down and burned? We are a, we are a, a derision to the people. And it is King Artaxerxes' administration probably that's partly responsible for the state of affairs in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is not disrespectful by any means, but he is honest about what's going on. And the tensions are high. They're, they're thick as a Florida summer air that you can cut with a knife. The king, with his eyebrows raised, tells, asks Nehemiah, what are you requesting? What are you asking for, Nehemiah? Just, Nehemiah is not manipulating this conversation, but he was ready for it. He was anticipating what would happen. He was praying to the God of heaven. He was confessing his sins and he was requesting, oh God, please give me, uh, let your ear be attentive so I might have mercy in the sight of this king. Chapter one, verse 11. Grant me mercy. So he's ready. He has prayed and with tensions high and Nehemiah is afraid. He shoots up a quick prayer to the God of heaven. This is what people who have made prayer a way of life do. They pray without ceasing. In the moment, he knows who he should ask first, and it's not King Artaxerxes. It's, it's, it's the God of heaven. So he shoots up his arrow prayer to God. There's no time for eloquence or for finding the right words quickly, and silently he just says, God, help, and then he goes right into his requests. And when you're praying to the God of heaven, dear friend, asking the king of Persia is no big deal. It's no big deal. God, again, is at work accomplishing his purposes through prayer. So in verses 5 through 8, we see Nehemiah is bold in his prayer to the God of heaven, which makes him bold in his request of King Artaxerxes. He is bold but respectful. He knows God has put Artaxerxes in charge and that he would need his blessing to go. And so he asked him for permission. Having already asked the Lord for help, he asked him for permission. He says, can I go back to my hometown and rebuild it? Just think of it, friends. The sort of tension that is here in the narrative. Think of it like you're before a judge requesting something. And it's on the line. And you know the judge could say yes or no. 
you know the judge could send you to jail or could let you go. More likely, pay, you'd have to pay the fine for you're holding your phone while you're driving, but you're going to say, uh, please forgive this. Now, just imagine it's something like that, but even the stakes are even greater. Your life is on the line. And in front of the king, he asked permission in front of the king and queen to go rebuild his hometown. And it says in the narrative, you see there in the verses, that the queen sitting beside him in verse 6, and it's, the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, and I imagine that the queen whispered in the king's ear and said, ask how long he's going to be gone. And the king's like, how long are you going to be gone? And Nehemiah tells him, and, and the king says, yes, you can go. Wow. That is amazing. Now, for me, I would have been tempted to stop right there and not to ask any more. But Nehemiah does not stop. He had thought about this, and he knew what it was going to take to rebuild. And so, you know, so he, he has in his mind uh, what he needs, and he sees a perfect opportunity, and the God of heaven is, is behind him, directing all things for his good, and so he is going to ask. You know, sometimes people try to contrast Ezra and Nehemiah here. Ezra and Nehemiah is one story, and, and in the story of Ezra, he also asks to go back, but he says that he will not ask the king for an escort back because he didn't want to be ashamed because he knew that God's good hand was on him, and he didn't need the king's escort. And some people say, well, you know, now Ezra is a man of faith, and Nehemiah just lives by his plans, but that's not how the Bible presents it at all. God makes use of Nehemiah's gifts of planning and preparation just as much as he uses Ezra's gifts of leading when there is no clear plan. It is not faith versus planning or planning versus laziness. God uses both these men in the way he had gifted them. And so he gives permission to go, but that's not enough for Nehemiah. Nehemiah has to ask for more. It's like your, your kids, right? You ask for another scoop of ice cream, uh, a, a, another, a, a, another bowl of sugar cereal. And by faith, Nehemiah planned and then asked for the king to provide for these materials for the plan. He, he wants letters of safe conduct. That's what he asked for in verses 5 through 8. And he, and he wants a letter to Asaph to send him wood from the forests of Lebanon to build, to rebuild the gates and the walls. It's audacious, friends. It's just audacious to ask these kinds of things before the, before the king. But he knew that God's good hand was behind him. The good hand of the Lord had been on him. Notice that when he asked for these things, he said, you know, from the national, national forest, the park, I want Asaph to give me wood so we can rebuild this thing. I want letters of safe conduct so we end up there safely. And notice to whom Nehemiah gives credit in verse 8. Not the king and not his own cleverness. He said, the king granted my request because, for, the good hand of God was upon me. Behind Nehemiah's sadness, behind his planning, behind the king's generosity is the good hand of God. Do you see that, dear friend? He wants you to. He is ultimately behind it all. Christian friend, when God puts something on your heart to do it for him, 
be bold in praying, planning, and asking. Because the good hand of the Lord is on you. You know, I've, I saw God work this. Sean, I didn't ask for permission. But I'm going to say it anyway. So I'll ask for forgiveness. I saw this in Sean's life this last summer. When, when things changed with the NAVs last year. And, and uh, Sean still wanted to continue ministry for at least a, a year here. Sean asked if he might do ministry through the branch. And what I saw in Sean's life was he prayed and he planned and he asked. Who, who will take up the reins if God moves Sean on? We don't know. But we can pray, we can plan, and we can ask boldly. Why? Because the good hand of God, our God, has been upon us all of our days. That's the request. Nehemiah is bold in his request because he knows it's God. Now the preparation. He moves on. It doesn't just stop. He's prayed and he's asked. He's acted by asking. Now it's time to act through preparation. Verses 9 through 20. He says... Nehemiah's memoirs tell us, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. So he has his letters of safe conduct. Now the king had sent with me officers of, my, of the army and horsemen. But when Senbala and the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I had a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate, and the dragon spring, to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates, and had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up to the, in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the, by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know what I had, where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble you are, we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruin with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right to that claim to, or claim in Jerusalem. This is God's word. So there is preparation. Nehemiah starts to act, and his act of preparation starts out in spite of opposition. You see it in verses 9 and 10. Nehemiah doesn't mention the four-year, four-month journey it took to get to Jerusalem, but there, even there, the good hand of God guided them safely home. And just when you think the tension is resolved with the king, and you can begin the work 
opposition arises, just like it did for Luther, just like it does, does for all God's works. The section begins by introducing the opposition. They're, they're jeering, they're making fun. They're, they're mocking these people of God. They're despising them, and then they're giving false accusations against them. And just because there is opposition to the work, friends, doesn't mean God's good hand is not on you. Oftentimes, opposition is a sign that you're doing exactly God's work, the work that God has called you to do. Now, Sinballat and Tobiah were likely governing officials of nearby regions who were displeased with those who sought the welfare of God's people. Well, how do you know whether you should ignore opposition and press forward or not? How do you know? Well, you can ask this question. Are they against God's work? And if they're against God's work, then you must press forward. Stay the course. Uh, I'll never forget when there was a hard time in the church uh, a year or so back, I, I asked somebody, uh, what do you think I should do? What do, you, what do you think should be done? And this was their words. Stay the course. Stay the course. Preach the word. Keep going. This is exactly what Nehemiah does. In the face of opposition, Nehemiah stays the course. He had been given, he had been given letters of safe conduct, so after all, who cares about the opposition, right? What are they going to do? It's the, it's the king's word against theirs, and this is in the face of opposition. Nehemiah knows that the good hand of God is upon them, and he accomplishes his good work through these means. So Nehemiah does not let opposition stop his plans. He does what a courageous, a courageous leader would do. He presses on. He presses in. Then in verses 11 through 16, we see how he presses in through this nighttime mission. The exiles had, the exile, Nehemiah, had come home. He had arrived in Jerusalem and he had been there for three days before doing anything. Imagine what it was like to come home after 30 or 40 or 50 years. Imagine what it was like to see the destruction of which you had only heard about. And he comes in, no fanfare awaited him. No one congratulating him on his plans because no one knows. But he waits and he hopes in God because a new day is dawning, a day of rebuilding and restoration. And in waiting and, and not telling all his plans to everyone, he is able to patiently plan what he would do next. And he gets a chance to see the lay of the land. So he goes in by night and he takes a few people with him and he understands the political landscape and, and he doesn't tell anybody. He doesn't tell the people that are about to do the work. He just lets it wait. He lets it sit in a prayerful consideration. He goes out by night and he considers what lays before them in his nighttime mission. The walls had been broken down and the gates had been burned by fire. Verse 16. And he's still told Nobody, the officials didn't know, the Jews had no idea, the priests, the nobles, the, the others. And there he is at night. Can you think of another nighttime mission where a leader of God was going out to save God's people? Think of 
the Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed, how he went into the garden of Gethsemane, and how he, too, was, though he had told others they, had, they really didn't know what he was about to do, and, and, and he had put his plans out there, but they didn't know. They didn't know what it would cost them. They didn't know what it would cost him, and he goes in the garden of Gethsemane, and he, and, and he on his knees, with great sweat drops of blood, agonizes over the wrath of God that will be upon him. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, he too knows the good hand of the Lord is upon him. And though through trial and pain, through suffering, toils and snares, God is going to lead him and his people safely home. In this nighttime mission, we can see little arrows pointing us to the, the true great leader of Israel, the true son, the, 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 the really courageous one, the son of the king of heaven. Nehemiah is just a foreshadow. Friends, the book of Nehemiah is not to tell you how to be more like Nehemiah or how to go from good to great. It's, it doesn't tell you how to be a, a great leader per se. It, do, it does that, but it, it's pointing to something much greater than that. It's pointing to a God who's rebuilding his people, who's restoring his people through his good hand. And then after his nighttime mission, we see this rousing call to action. In face of opposition, he goes out by night, and now he calls the people to action. It's time. And Nehemiah rallies the troops and he gathers all the Jews and the priests and the nobles and the officials and everyone that would do the work. And he reminds them of what they already know and calls them to action. We, we don't know how long this remnant had been here in, in back in Jerusalem or, or why they hadn't started to rebuild, but they were a reproach to the, the nations that were surrounding them. They were a byword, a, a derision. And it was so because of their sin of God against God and God's judgment on them. But now he's starting to rebuild. He's starting to restore through his good work. And Nehemiah encouraged them and exhorts them to help him rebuild the wall so they no longer suffer derision. And then he tells them the story of how he got there. These few sentences, he tells them how the good hand of God was upon him for good. In verse 18, he says, and I told them, I told them what needed to be done, and now I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, what did they say? Let us rise up and do the work. Let's go to work, guys. Look what God has done. Through the testimony of Nehemiah, what might he do through your testimony of God's good hand in your life if you'll share it with others? They say, let's rise up and build. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. They get ready for the work there in verse 18 and 19. And courageous prayer and courageous planning has led to the people taking courage and they begin the work. That's just as surprising as King Artaxerxes saying, yes, go. As King Artaxerxes said, don't only go, I'll give you the wood to rebuild the gates. This was an enemy. 
And now the people who are discouraged and despairing, they say, let us rise up. And through courageous prayer and through courageous planning, the good hand of God has been upon them. But it's not the end of the story. Tensions are still here. In verse 19, Sanbala and Tobiah raise their opposition. Again, they, be, they make fun of them and they hurl accusations at them. So what will they do? What, what, what's going to happen when, when people are, are bullying you for the good hand of God that's been on you or, or for the good work you're about to do for God or for being a Christian, what will you do? And Nehemiah answers that these naysayers with a standard reply, his standard reply of hope in God's good hand on them for good. And notice what he says, the, the God of heaven will make us prosper. He will give us success and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim. He just speaks the truth to them. You guys are not a part of this. And, and you don't want it to happen because it's bad for you and because you don't want God's good work, but God will make us prosper. He, he will make us build. He will help us. There was a spiritual dimension to this, dear friends. They were being used, these, these enemies of the work, they were being used by the evil one to oppose the work of God the work of the good one, the God of heaven. Now, Christians today, we do not battle against flesh and blood. We do not battle against people or nations, but against the spiritual forces in, in heavenly places. So how do we enter that battle? Paul tells us in, in Ephesians chapter six, we enter it with the full armor of God. Take on the full armor of God that you may be able to withstand evil in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand therefore, taking on the, uh, all, all of the armor, the breastplate of, of truth, righteousness, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. And, and having done all of that, pray, pray, pray. Did we in our own strength confide the battle would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord of hosts' name, from age to age the same, and he will win the battle. So like Nehemiah, we can go firmly with our feet, firmly planted with our our emotions in check, and we can say the Lord will make us prosper because he is on our side. That's the preparation. In the face of opposition, through a nighttime mission, uh, God is making known that his good hand will be upon his people for good. Now in conclusion, what we want to notice about God, now this is one whole chapter, but basically it's an appendix of of, of the work that's about to happen. I'm gonna do this in, a, in about a paragraph. In, in answer to Nehemiah's plea for God to remember the work that he, he, he started and wants to finish, as he goes through many dangers, toils, and snares, God has brought them to Jerusalem. And God uses Nehemiah's organizational skills to get the wall rebuilt and to, to, to mend the gates. And in chapter three is one big appendix on how God has unified his people to do the work. 
The Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and everyone else, they work side by side. And what you notice in chapter 3 is this phrase repeated, next to. And they work next to, and they work next to, and they work next to him and him and him and her. And, and even Shalom in verse 12 employs his own daughters in the task. No one is too small not to mention. No work is too insignificant to mention. The good hand of the Lord had been upon them, and he's accomplishing the work through them, and they're doing it together as God's people, members of this family, this covenant community, and they go side by side, and they say, let's build the wall because God's good hand is on us. And they get up, and they work, and one after the other, they, they rebuild the walls and the gates closest to their homes. Every member has work to do. You can sit out of the work, dear friends, like the noble, the Tekoite nobles did in verse 5, but you will not enjoy the life-giving joy that comes from working side by side with God's people. And you can just notice as you skim through chapter 3 that they start at the sheep gate, which is one of the northernmost gates at the top of the city wall, and they work their way around to the, to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, basically the sewer, and they work their way through the steps going to David's uh, city and his sepulcher and his tomb, and they make their way all the way back up to the sheep gate, and everyone side by side is working for the good of each other and for the glory of God. No task is left unfinished. Every member had a job to do. It was a precursor of the body of Christ, the church. Corinthians 12 tells us that there's one body but many members, and every member has a job to do, from the menial tasks of nailing up the boards to the administrative tasks of organizing God's people. We all have a job to do, and we are all better together, next to each other, side by side. This is one of the most significant ways we fight the opposition of the devil. We work together in good times and in bad, in life's fair seasons of spring and the hard seasons of winter, but we do not rely on our own strength because God's good work is being accomplished by his good hand through us. God uses means, means like prayer and means like planning and means like people to get his work done on earth. This was something Martin Luther understood. In his role as pastor in 1527, six years after the Diet of Worms, the bubonic plague was spreading throughout Germany. And Luther had thought long and hard about what his response should be to the people that he pastored. Should he stay or should he go? And we know about we know about pandemics and, and plagues and, and, and what it all looks like and the decisions you have to make. And Luther, Luther decided to stay. He saw this plague as not just a natural phenomenon, but in opposition to the work of God. And most likely, in October of 1527, he pinned a hymn called The Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's based on the meditation on Psalm 46. He believed, too, like Nehemiah, that the good hand of God was on him. Now, we're going to sing this hymn uh, in, in just a moment, but I just want to he, hear are the words to the starting of this hymn. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood, in the, in the midst of, 
of pandemics and in the, in the midst of opposition to his work, our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing, for still our aged foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts his name from age to age the same, and he will win the battle. Dear friend, if you are worried about the opposition to the work of God here at the branch or in your own family or in your own heart, you can take rest in the God who knows you and the God who accomplishes his good work by his good hand all his days. Let's take a moment to pray.